Hello, Gold Avenue Church. Last week, Pastor Jalisa preached an incredibly hopeful and encouraging message on Psalm 46. And if you've not listened to that yet, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that before this message. But in that message on our ever-present God, uh, who always present in times of trouble, she uh, called us to lift up or keep our eyes on the horizon, on what's coming amidst whatever chaos might be going on in our lives or in this world. And she used this beautiful image of uh, sitting in the passenger seat while her father or while our heavenly father is driving and then keeping our eyes on the horizon. And she said, God is the one who makes wars to cease. God is the one who will be exalted. And that that image in the end of the psalm, I believe, is actually a prophetic picture of the end of the ages when Jesus returns and we watch him put an end to war. We watch him bring peace to the earth. And so we're transitioning now and we're going to, as a church, do just what Pastor Julissa called us to do in that last message. We're going to lift up our eyes and we're going to look toward the hope of the church, Jesus' return, for the next number of weeks. And so we're going to begin this today with a text from Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and then I'll read a verse from 1 Peter as well. But turn with me to Titus 2. Starting at verse 11, Paul's writing to Titus, who's been left by him to oversee the churches on the island of Crete. He's giving instructions for what to teach the church, how to organize the church. And in the middle of those instructions, Paul says this to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And then from 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Let's pause and pray a moment before I bring the message. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is founded in your character, which is eternal and unchanging that you will bring every word you've caused to be written to pass. We thank you that you love and care for us enough to not only promise us your presence with us in this age, to not only promise us your return, but to speak to us in detail about your return and about what it will bring. Lord, we pray that as we begin this journey of lifting up our eyes to your return and examining scripture, that you would breathe on our hearts and minds and fill them with holy hope and longing for that day, that blessed hope. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your precious name. Amen.
Well, friends, I want to begin with a story from one of my favorite books. It's called The Journey of Desire by John Eldridge. And in, in The Journey of Desire, Eldridge tells the story of God thwarting, thwarting his yearly fly fishing trip five years in a row. Eldridge describes this yearly pilgrimage as a time of consummate pleasure, a banquet of beauty with deep friendship and adventure before it all began to unravel. First, on a trip on the incredible Frying Pan River in Colorado, it's washed out by a rainstorm turned snowstorm that lasts the entire trip. Next year, he, he plans a trip for July to eliminate all possibilities of snow, only to receive a call the night before his trip that severe thunderstorms have created mudslides and the fishing's impossible. Well, not about to be thwarted so easily, Eldridge grabs his phone book and dials the number of another guide who can take them on a different river, only to arrive the next morning and be told, it's the strangest thing, but they opened the dam last night and the river's flooded. Sorry. The following year, it's a drought. The year after that, one of the best fishing spots in the entire U.S. simply yields nothing for them, like the fish have vanished. In year five, Eldridge is scheduled to speak in Oregon, close to where he'd spent much of his time in his childhood, and he manages to have a friend arrange access for him on a private stretch of the Deschutes River. When the owner of a shop in the small town nearby hears where he's going and whispers, Mr. That may be the best 100 yards of fishing in the United States. And then the owner of the ranch informs him that no one has fished there for six months. Eldridge thinks, this is going to be incredible. By day's end, Eldridge has caught not one single fish. And the ranch owner, Bill, looks at him apologetically and says, I don't know what's happening. People come from all over the world to fish the ran this ranch. I've never had a day like this, ever. But Eldridge knew God was thwarting him. He just didn't understand why. Even saying to God, Lord, I'm serving you faithfully. Why won't you let me have this little pleasure? Well, the next day you'd get his answer. As he drove down back roads in central Oregon with windows down, looking at ranches and daydreaming of having his own place, drinking in the beauty and solitude, the warmth of the sun and the sight of horses grazing in the fields, suddenly a thought bubbled up and out of his heart. I really could be happy here without God. And in an instant, it all made sense. God was thwarting him in order to show him the deepest desire of his heart. And it wasn't God. Eldridge was trying to make his own little version of heaven on earth. He'd allowed really good and beautiful things to shift from the place of good gifts to deepest desires. Things that he hopes and longs for even more than the appearing of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully, 
fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed, says Peter to the churches of Asia Minor. Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, says Paul to Titus and the churches on the island of Crete. Set your hope fully. Wait for the blessed hope. Well, friends, we can only hope for what we actually desire. We can only hope for what we actually desire. Eldridge was serving God in ministry, and yet he needed God to show him that his desires, and thus also his hopes, were really set on arranging for his personal happiness on this earth, quite independent of Jesus' return. So when Paul urges Titus and all with him to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives as they wait for the blessed hope of Jesus appearing, he's not merely telling them to say no to a list of sinful things, though he is certainly doing that. Paul's attempting to shift their entire paradigm of thinking and living from one of trying to arrange for their own happiness and all the old sinful ways they used to do that, to one of now longing for the only thing which can and will satisfy all of our desires, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it's Jesus appearing, and all that Scripture prophesies will come with it. The separation of the wicked and the righteous, God's judgment, God's cleansing of the earth from evil, His wiping away of tears, of mourning, of suffering, and His ushering in a new creation that will bring about, in Scripture's words, the renewal of all things. Only this renewal will fully satisfy. Anything less than this, as our highest true desire, is idolatry. And yet the problem is, it's really difficult to sustain this kind of desire and longing. And it's oh so easy, like Eldridge, to allow substitutes, even good things, to usurp the place of this hope. So friends, how do we know when our cravings for more of the outdoors or more time with our friends or for the perfectly decorated living space are usurping our longing for Jesus' return? How can we truly discern when the weight of our happiness and fulfillment seem to rest on how our children are doing, on whether we're noticed and appreciated at work, whether the politician or party we support gets elected, whether our Facebook post is viewed and liked, whether we make the team, get the part, find the spouse, have the child. How can we truly know if any of our hopes and our desires are carrying more weight than our desire and our hope 
for Jesus' return. Friends, to be human is to live with longing and desire. It is, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, to have eternity or to have eternal things set in our hearts. Paul Tripp says it this way, Deep in the heart of every human being who has ever lived has been the longing for paradise. We all desire for things to be the way the Creator intended them to be. And these desires are holy. They're God-given. They are whispers of a time that was and of one to come. And so to squash these desires is not only not a possibility for a Christian, it's not an option. Christians must be people who live full of desire and of holy longing. And yet, to live with our deepest desires for connection, for adventure, for beauty, for purpose, for health, all partially unfulfilled, sometimes mostly unfulfilled, is wretchedly painful. We aren't made for the heartache of unfulfilled desires. And yet, the uncomfortable reality is that our deepest desires don't stand the chance of being fully fulfilled this side of Jesus' return. And so the big question for us, really the main question here, is whether we'll come to terms with our dilemma, whether we, like Eldridge, will allow ourselves to face and answer this question. Will life ever be what I so deeply want it to be in a way that cannot be lost? Will life ever be what I so deeply want it to be in a way that cannot be lost? No, it will not. It will not. But if we're honest with ourselves, many of us will have to admit that we're still trying to arrange for it to be. And though the thought of Jesus' return is occasionally encouraging, it often doesn't feel deeply and daily relevant to the lives we're pursuing. We don't think about it often. There was an app that could somehow track all the things that we spend time hoping for, desiring, a hope tracker or a a desire monitor, I believe Jesus' return would be shockingly low on most of our lists. Because, in all honesty, we're mostly still trying to arrange, or trying our best to arrange, for happiness on this earth, as though it can be done. Through Peter and through Paul, God speaks to us today, saying, Lift up the eyes of your hearts. Lift them up and fix them firmly on that moment when all of history changes in the blink of an eye. Jesus' return. Set your heart. Set your hope. Set your true north. The longings of your heart 
fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. Wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the moment when he appears. This is the moment and will introduce the age when desire is fulfilled, when bodies will be transformed, when relationships will be fully healed, when the demonic badgering of fear and insecurity will be no more, when depression and doubt and dark nights of the soul will be gone forever, when all wickedness and deception are not only exposed, but judged and removed fully and finally when true biblical justice prevails, when racial divides are no longer remembered, when tyrants and dictators are removed, when poverty and hunger and child abuse are wiped away, when migrants no longer die looking for a better country because the new heavens and earth have come. This is the day which all the hopes of all the ages rest upon. Jesus Jesus truly is, as Haggai prophesied, the desire of all nations. And so, says Paul and Peter, set your hope fully on Jesus' return. Desire it. Long for it. Wait for his glorious appearing. The word Paul uses here, which we translate wait, has no passivity in it. Rather, it's this Filled with longing and eager expectation kind of waiting. It's the same kind of waiting that the, the father in the parable of the prodigal son does in Luke 15 when he sees his son from a long way off because he is daily scanning the horizon for his son's return. Everything in that father longed and looked for the day when his son would come home and they would be reunited. Paul's calling us to live in such a way that Everything in us looks and longs for the day when we are reunited with the Lord to scan the horizon for his coming, even if it seems a long way off. This is why the pages of the New Testament are filled with longing for Jesus' imminent return. Even as Jesus ascends to heaven, two angels tell his disciples, the same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And only two chapters later, we find Peter preaching, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, the Christ who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes For God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. To the Philippians, Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. To the Corinthians, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. And then, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
And then to the Colossians, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. To the Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believed. To Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. From Peter, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And from Hebrews 11, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. If we were to start reading the New Testament at the beginning of Acts, from the point of Jesus' ascension to heaven and to read it all in one sitting, we'd experience a church that, like the father looking for his lost son, is indeed scanning the horizon, longing eagerly for her Lord's appearing. A church that has her hope fully set on the renewal of all things that will take place at Jesus' return. Church that's longing for vindications, that's aware of the judgment to come, that's hungry again for renewal. A church seeking to faithfully embody and proclaim and advance the kingdom of God, but under no illusion that they'll usher in a golden era apart from Jesus' return. A church 
that is aware they'll have to undergo hardship before reward. A church that is scanning the horizon and attempting to prepare herself as a bride for a bridegroom. And so we too, church family, are going to spend the next seven or so weeks lifting up our heads, listening to what the scriptures say about what will precede Jesus' return and how Jesus himself instructs us to prepare for his return. But for today, we want to end here and let these questions linger. We want to ask the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts around each of them. Am I attempting to make my own little versions of heaven on earth to arrange for my happiness in such a way that lesser desires have grown greater than my desire for Jesus' return? Am I allowing good gifts to shift into the place of deepest desires? What am I truly hoping for and desiring? Perhaps it would be helpful for each each of us this week to find some space, some silence, and with journal in hand, to ask, Lord, would you reveal my heart's desires to me? And then to ask him to breathe on our hearts and to fill them afresh with holy longing for the only blessed hope, his glorious appearing. And so let's begin by asking him to do that right now. Lord, we love you. And we thank you even now for lifting up our eyes again to the hope of your glorious return. We thank you that our hearts are filled with hope and yet, Lord, they're also filled with conviction because you are indeed revealing to us, even beginning to reveal the ways in which we're tempting to arrange for our own happiness in this world apart from your return. And... We know that grieves you and it dishonors you because we can never have true fulfillment apart from you and all that you are and all that you are longing to bring. And so, Lord, we invite you to bring your conviction in the way that you so often and so faithfully do. Would you gently and tenderly reveal to us what we're longing for? And would you replace these lesser longings with joyful, holy, zealous, full longing for your return? And we, Lord, right now, just lift up our voices with the church, the spirit and the bride at the end of Revelation and say, come, Lord Jesus, come, come, come. We love you, Lord. Amen.